Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Epstein platform and Richard the exercise today knowing as I do and as our listeners do from past episodes that you are somebody who is not well represented by the two major parties political candidate presidential candidates this year you jest <laughs> is to lay out what sort of the four or five most important agenda items would be if Richard Epstein or a Richard Epstein approved candidate was going to be running for president this year and you've given me some sort of tips as to where this may go but I don't know the details so let me start you off here I know that you think that one of the key components to restoring America economically is rethinking the way that we do taxation lay out the Epstein ideal there okay well the first choice you have to make in the tax system is that an income tax is that which you earn uh, the traditional view has always been for an income tax and over time I've come to think that this is probably a mistake uh, the easiest way to understand this is the debate over carried interest the big investor in a company works for the company and then sees capital appreciation and you have to decide how much of the swag that this person brings down is ordinary income or capital gain subject to different regimes if you you go to the consumption tax, you don't have to make those characterizations. All you have to do is to say, look, if you've taken some money and you earned it and you put it in a lockbox so that it's savings and not consumption, uh, we don't tax you on it. Once you take it out of the lockbox, we're going to treat you as though you've expended the money and at that particular point it will be taxed. This will give something of an incentive for savings and make it a lot easier to run the mechanics on the opposite side. You will have a somewhat smaller tax base, but you'll have a much larger investment base. So in the end, I think the increases in wages and actual spendings will probably offset it. It's a massive simplification. The second thing is I've always been a defender of the flat tax, even before it became fashionable by people like Rabushka and Hall or Steve Forbes. And I do so because I'm a classical liberal and the flat tax always got the endorsement of people like Aristotle and Locke and um, Hayek and so forth. And the basic argument is, is that you don't want the marginal incentives on taxation to shift with the amount of wealth because that means that a rich person subject to a Progressive tax is going to get a lower after-tax rate of return than a poor person looking at the same investment, and you're going to start to distort the way things go. In addition, you start running a progressive tax, you have to police it, so you have to worry about strategies to move income from one period to another, from one person to another. And these things turn out to be enormously expensive. I was, at the beginning of my career, a tax lawyer who knew how to make these things happen. And the more I thought about it, the more appalled I got at the amount of sheer waste of money that people did in order to improve their after-tax position at the expense of social welfare. And the flat tax means that the timing issues, the person issues, they don't matter as well. So all of a sudden, the tax system becomes much simpler to operate. And it also, by the way, has a very healthy dose of redistribution. And if people are worried about that, if you earn a million dollars, um, you're certainly not getting back $150,000 worth of return benefits on a 15% 
percent flat tax. So you can actually run a modest redistribution program where the flat tax is not a ban on it, but it tends to stop the enormous runaway deficits that we have today on transfer payments. And so somebody like Donald Trump should say, I understand your frustration on this tax system, but instead of getting angry at the rich, what you have to do is to rethink the way the system works. And if we can save on administrative costs and improve overall productivity in the long run, this thing will pay for itself. And again, if it turns out that we set the tax too low, you can raise it a little bit higher so as to meet your revenue target. What you don't want people to be able to do is to play rent-seeking games where the way in which you get the income that for needed for the government is to put the tax on somebody else. Where everybody plays that, you pay it, I don't have to pay it game. You get huge waste on the one hand and diminished revenues on the other. There is a notion that you will hear from certain people, especially on the right, who think seriously about political economy that as a relative matter, uh, regulation may actually be the bigger impediment to growth at the moment in the, in the U.S. Than, than taxation. I be, and I believe you've assented to that before when I've, I've mentioned that to you. How would you go about rethinking regulation? Where would be the areas that you'd really target? Well, I mean, the first thing is when you're trying to figure out what regulation ought to do, take off the table, at least at the outcome, using it as a system of disguised redistribution, like putting phony pools together for medical care, and try to think of the serious externalities that need some kind of control, and the market failures that could lead to various kinds of breakdown. And so in the first thing, you certainly want to make sure that you are able to control pollution through a system of regulation. And what you do is you would imitate the private law, which essentially has a mix of injunctions against very serious outbreaks, and then a system of taxes on lower things. So instead of having the environmental law try to be all things to all people and to use it to essentially preserve habitat, you put that aside, and if you want to preserve habitat, increase the amount of money you spend and buy it so that you create better incentives for land use element through voluntary transactions than through coercion. Second thing you want to do is to not privilege old investments over new investments, the single greatest failure that we have in this particular area is we grandfather inefficient plants and have impossibly high barriers with respect to the creation of new ones, and this leads to a nuclear fleet of one kind or another, which is 40 years old and much more dangerous than it really ought to be. So if you concentrate on the externalities, uh, then in effect, you're going to do much better than using environmental regulation to sort of change the style of life, get rid of industrialization, preserve the woodpecker or anything of that particular sort. With respect to contracting arrangements, what you try to do is to use the system of regulation to control systematic market failures. Some devices are remarkably simple. You want to have important contracts in writing. That's not a novelty. That's been true since 1677. Um, it also turns out you want to have a recordation system so that everybody knows what the state of the title is when it comes to borrowing and lending on the one hand or buying and selling on the other. That's been done for 100 years and can be done fairly well. And Antitrust, you want to stop horizontal abuse, and you can do that relatively simply, harder to control it with respect to mergers. Generally, you don't want to do much with respect to vertical arrangements where a retailer is bought by a wholesaler because for the most part, these tend to be pro-efficiency rather than anti-efficiency devices. When it comes to natural monopolies, you'd like to have a sensible system of rate of return regulation, but you don't want to have the laxity that's associated with recent judges. Oddly enough, before people knew a great deal about um, rate regulation, 
population in the period, say, between 1890 and 1925, the judges did a really good job in making sure that the thing operated correctly. So that would be the second kind of feature that you want. And once you get past all those sorts of things, then you have to worry about the consumer protection arrangements, and those should be viewed very heavily under a presumption of error so that you know the Consumer Finance Protection Agency beware of it. The securities exchange stuff, beware of it. Whenever somebody tells you that he's going to protect somebody, what he's telling you is he's going to limit those persons and their options because he knows better. And so you want to really cut back on those things. And if you're going to do stuff to give people information, you want it really simple, like the Schumer box. Want to figure out um, how much one loan is worth another? We give you a standardized firm so form so you can evaluate these things one for another. This means probably 80 to 90% of the regulation goes off the books. And then if it turns out a problem arises, you try to figure out a tailored solution to solving it. Uh, what we do in regulation today is we essentially make sure that the regulated entities prove that they're able to withstand any and all contingencies. And in doing so, it's an enormous cost that drives important firms from the market. So we have to fundamentally reorient that particular feature as well. Healthcare is probably one of the most daunting topics on the horizon politically in terms of the fact that it's just going to be very difficult for anybody, probably of either party, to do a serious overhaul of where we are right now. But Richard, if I gave you the magic wand, what would healthcare reform look well, like? Well, I mean, first of all, we'd start by trying to figure out where we went wrong in the first place. And the major premise in healthcare, like everything else, is first you remove barriers to entry and then you try to figure out how to create cross subsidies amongst various parties. Start with one and you're going to be relatively safe. So what are some of the barriers to entry? Well, a big one is you don't allow the interstate sale of insurance so that local insurance companies tend to have a market advantage. Oftentimes, that could translate into a 20, 30, or 40% premium over what it would be in a competition situation. You get rid of those particular things already. The rates are going to go down, and the access problem is going to be changed. Second thing you do is you look at all the mandates that have been added onto these contracts in the last 30 or 40 years and recognize that if you're requiring somebody to do something that nobody wants to do, chances are it's a very bad idea. No government guy knows more sitting at a distance than every single insurance provider and customer group in the country. Well, what's the price of the mandates? Roughly speaking, we've managed to lose 10% of the insured promise population from about 1975 or 1980. It goes down from 60 to 50%, roughly speaking. That's 15 million or more people are out of work because we force them to buy stuff that they really don't need to buy get rid of that. Uh, it turns out doctors and hospitals, they're a real issue. What they do is they have sufficient you know, conditions of necessity before you can open up a new hospital or a new wing. And it turns out that doctors who are world-class specialists in New York have to essentially cool their heels if they want to move to Florida. So what you do is you get rid of the licensing elements on those two things as well. Then what you do is you start looking at the Obamacare program and figure out everything that is done wrong and try to remove those things even if you can't repeal it. So what are some of the errors there? Well, they have something known as the medical um, cost allowance. And what this says is you could only spend 
15% of your income on administrative expenses. The rest you have to spend on health care. Nobody who put that in place knows where the marginal dollar goes best. Get rid of it and you'll have a much more efficient system, for example, in controlling fraud, informing consumers and so forth, more accurate billing systems and so on. Then what you want to do is to get rid of all the subsidies of one group of insurances against another. And how do you start to do that? Well, you don't make sure that people cannot pick who goes in their pools and then require one insurer with a good pool to subsidize another one, where in effect both of these guys turn out in a very serious way to be underwater. And so what you do is you now have all of these uh, health care plans which are losing money because the Obama people simply did not believe that adverse selection would take place. And they gave you classic kind of double talk. They said, on the one hand, these poor young people are so ignorant that we have to put them in there for their own benefit. And then on the next hand, they turn around and they say, you know what? Unless we could force these young people in there, we're not going to be able to cross-subsidize the older people. It can't be that you're doing it for the benefit of the young and for the old simultaneously. And both those statements turn out to be true. And you could go through virtually every other line in the Obamacare stuff on pre-existing conditions and so forth so that you could slow down the rate of decline under that program, increase the level of access, get rid of any pretense of replacing the employer mandate and you'll be fine. And for God's sake, never, never go to single payer. Uh, the subsidized version of government health care will be inefficient, but the cost to consumers will be sufficiently low that it will drive the marketplace of private firms out and you'll have a government monopolist of indescribable incompetence that only a person like Bernie Sanders could love. <laughs> Last area that I'll ask you about on the foreign policy front, Richard, I think that your prescription based on our conversations in the past for how to deal with the threat of ISIS would be different than President Obama's, also different, I think, than a lot of your fellow libertarians. Explain yeah, I, how you would approach that. Well, look, I mean, I have written a number of articles which said that Pax Americana is not such a bad thing. And what do I mean by that is what the United States puts itself into a net deficit position in order to give a strong guarantee through NATO and other organizations that an attack on somebody else is going to be treated as an attack on the United States. And this means, in effect, that you can now do a fairly good job in deterring people from picking off your weak nations. Um, Donald Trump doesn't understand this, and so he says, I don't have to come to the aid of other NATO nations. He's never heard of Article 5 of NATO, which since 1948 and 49 has obligated us to do exactly that and kept Western Europe in place. The president thought that he could reset things with the Russians, but Putin is, of course, a scoundrel. You give him something, he'll ask for more. There's no such thing as a quid pro quo with a dictator. He takes one thing, he asks for another thing, you Given that, he'll want the third. And so you have to rearm the situation in Europe, put more tanks in there, put more forward positions. In the Middle East, you cannot simply as a president, the worst commander-in-chief in history in some sense, because he wants to do this. He wants to essentially approve every airstrike and veto gland troops. What you do if you do this is you take an army of about 50,000 people or 75,000 people without heavy equipment, without an air force, and you treat them as though they're 10 times as powerful as Saddam Hussein. Saying when he had a bigger army, you were able to wipe out in a couple of weeks. What you have to do is you have to go after these guys and you have to let the generals decide the strategy and not have the president put the veto on it. What's the consequence of this? Well, you know, you have several hundred thousand people murdered in Syria, uh, same number or more in Iraq. You have a militant Iran. You have 10 million people being refugees in the 
European sector and in the Middle East and so forth. Why is that? Because we hollow out our situation and we simply say that ultimately we'll get something done. And look, I'm the last person in the world to plan a military attack. Uh, but the one thing I know is that generals know more about this than I do. You have to guard against the fact that some of them may be wildly ambitious. But my experience, having worked with the military on a number of occasions, is that they really do understand the military and the civilian divide better than the president does. And I don't think that you should start dealing with your eminent military leaders under a presumption of enormous distrust. I have spoken to all sorts of people around the country in high and low positions. And the only thing you hear about the president is a resigned kind of contempt. The guy's in over his head, does not know that he's in over his head, continues to do all of this. And just as on the domestic front, they announced that they've had a great uh, ability to combat unemployment and to improve growth. They sort of announced that they've improved our position and prestige overseas. Our military, unfortunately, is too small to what we have to do. And whether you look in the Ukraine or at Iran or in the South China Sea or anywhere else on the earth, all you could say about Mr. Obama is that his indecisive amateurism has reduced the status and the effectiveness of the United States everywhere in the world. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.